Hello and welcome to an all-election special of the Sitcom Club. If you're listening to this at the point of its release, there are only seven days to go until the general election of 2015. And myself, Heyho Mooncat and Co, and yourself, hello, I'm your Palocho, decided that we would address the thorny subject of politics in sitcom this week. Now, before we get down to it, let me just say, first of all, thank you very, very much for all the lovely Twitter feedback that we've had, particularly over the last couple of weeks. We've had tons of feedback on Twitter. If you've got anything for us at all, anything that you want to suggest as a future topic on the show or just any feedback about any of the shows that we've discussed, you can tweet us at the Sitcom Club. We're going to delve into the mailbag next week and answer all of the queries and topics properly. However, one thing just to mention just now because this is a neat little introduction to this week's show quite a lot of discussion over the past couple of weeks about Esmond and Larby and a particular show that they did on ITV called Hope It Rains funnily enough Esmond and Larby were suddenly a topic of conversation during an election campaign during the Conservative Manifesto launch David Cameron spoke about the good life and he wasn't alluding to Tom and Barbara however that rapidly became a trending topic on Twitter and gave Lazy Hacks, something to talk about for a 24-hour period. Some people said, oh yes, Tom and Barbara, yeah, that's, that's very much a sort of Thatcherite sitcom. And then other people came along and said, no, it isn't, and so on. But it was rather odd. That was a rather surreal moment in the campaign. Almost as surreal as that point where Ed Miliband suddenly mentioned the Spectrum game Manic Minor in an interview. I texted my brother to tell him that that had happened. And had to assure him, I haven't made this up. This is not just bollocks that I've come out with. This has actually happened. Manic Minor is a trending topic in relation to the election campaign. Any road up this week, we're talking about instances where sitcom characters engage in political storylines, how sitcoms deal with the topic of impartiality, and just any other bits and pieces related to the ballot box and the situation comedy. Now, because I've just mentioned it there, we might as well actually start with The Good Life, because over the past few years, there have been a few newspaper articles which have come along and said, there's the epitome of Thatcherism, overlooking the fact that, of course, The Good Life began in 1975, the same year that Thatcher became leader of the opposition, four years before she became prime minister. So it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination. But we're going to do a little bit of... I don't really see what's so Thatcherite about it. I suspect it's the idea that Tom doesn't want to be part of the rat race, with apologies to the late Robert Robinson. And yet, rather than looking to the state for support, he's decided to go all self-sufficient. But that's the thing, he's gone self-sufficient. He's not looking to make a profit. He's kind of hand-to-mouth in a way. It's not like he's looking to produce enough excess to have a very, very comfortable... Exist. He's not started a grocery business. It is the whole thing of questioning the way things were in the 70s. He doesn't find business sexy or exciting. I mean, the main thing is, is Margot. She is proto-Thatcher. Yeah, very much so. I suspect that the reason that... I mean, it's usually right-leaning journalists who make this association trying to utilise the popularity of this sitcom for their own ends. Trying to get the, the rub from it. And you could, if you've Take any one episode of The Good Life and just look at it through that prism. You can say, there's Tom and Barbara. They're 
not particularly well off, but they're not looking to the state for any support. They're doing it for themselves. They're getting up at six o'clock in the morning and planting the seeds and so on and so on. Now, that overlooks the fact that they've chosen to put themselves in that position in the first place in episode one. And they've been in a position to put themselves in that position. I presume they own their own house because of Tom's job. And also, it wasn't as if he was working for the local council, for example. He was designing silly plastic toys for inclusion in cereal packets. So you can't even say it's an ideological thing. You can't even say that he wasn't happy about being a civil servant or something like that, which would be an odd premise anyway. But if that was the case, then you might have some sort of argument. But the fact of the matter is that I don't think there's any political element about it whatsoever. I don't believe that Esmond and Larby were trying to... Well, there's a small P political element. It is questioning the structure of mid-70s society. The thing I always compare it with is James Burke's connections with that beginning of, right, the power goes out. Do you know how to use a plough? How are you going to farm? How are you going to eat? That's not necessarily at the heart of the good life, but there is that thing of have we got too far away from nature? Have we got too far away from sustainable living? Environmentalism, that's what the good life is about. Yes. Well, what I mean is it's not party political. I don't think there's any kind of ideological bent behind this. But it's not apolitical either. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. As far as Margot was concerned, because as you say, Margot was quite often held up as a sort of prototype, Thatcher figure. Where is Marco in terms of being a protagonist or an antagonist? Because she sometimes fulfills both roles. Yeah, she's a supporting character. Margot's political proclamations are not entirely satirical. I don't think we're meant to agree with her wholeheartedly, though. Do you say that they sometimes get rounds of applause and cheers? Well, there's one particularly famous scene where she is offering to pay her rates on a pro rata basis because she's unhappy about certain services not having been supplied. And she comes up with that famous line, I am the silent majority. It's that one specific line that's then cited time and again, as if to say that there was a a huge swathe of people en masse in the 1970s who just felt that the state was too big and that their voice wasn't being heard. So when she does these things, they're not being held up to particularly biting or satirical ridicule. And yet I don't think you meant to agree with them. The only person I would actually hazard a guess to his party politics would be Jerry. I would say that Jerry was... There's no doubt that Jerry's a small-c conservative. I've got a funny feeling that Jerry would be an old-school conservative in the model of, say, Jim Pryor or Francis Pym, someone like that. I don't really think that he what would What, a one-nation? Yeah, exactly. I don't yeah. really think that he would be a Thatcherite. I think That's Margot would... going to be something we need to get our teeth into as well, the changing nature of conservatism. Yes, there is a strange risk of looking at old sitcoms for political messages and seeing them very much in post-1979 terms. But should we st- let, before we move on then, let's, let's stick with the good life. Right, Margot, we know how Margot votes. Even though I think there's a weird sense that she's something of a wannabe high Tory. I'm not sure that she would be entirely behind the whole Thatcherite money first and foremost thing, because that allows people like Derek Trotter, not necessarily Derek Trotter himself, but it allows the Derek Trotters of the world to achieve a certain amount of success that I don't think Margot would like. So we're seeing Jerry's probably a bit one nation, remembers full employment under Macmillan and all that stuff. And Tom and Barbara strike me as liberals. Yes, I think that Tom and Barbara are the 
characters out of the foursome who are least likely to actually really have any interest in party politics because they've now created a situation for themselves where they're working 14, 16, 18 hours a day. They're really not going to have the time to sit there and digest the party manifestos when they come out, for example. And there is an argument for saying that they have, in many ways, they've sort of taken themselves out of that entire process. It doesn't really matter to Tom and Barbara who becomes prime minister at the general election because it's not really going to affect them. You know, they're out with that process now to a large extent. Quick time out for sitcom universe discussion. Are we going to pretend that all BBC sitcoms are in a shared universe? (laughs) Something I like to do, something brought across from my DC Comics obsession. It's happening now in the movie theatres with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I can't help feeling that superhero movies don't really need that. It was the sitcoms that needed it. (laughs) Jerry's life's going to be hell after 1979, isn't it? I imagine he grows a beard. No, no, I'm not him. (laughs) Yes, I did see him on the news last night. Well, no, I think that he's only really going to have problems when Jim Hacker becomes PM. Because up until that point, you know, Hacker's the head of the Department for Administrative Affairs. So, yes, there's definitely an argument to say that cabinet ministers and secretaries of state were much more recognisable back then than they are now. I mean, chances that the general public can really name a lot of cabinet ministers is probably not very high. But I think that his problems are principally going to begin when Jim becomes PM. Yeah. Let's tackle that. I think Jim Hacker is actually in a world where the liberals get in. Because at the beginning, when... When was it written? Mid seventies. It was. Well, the, it was carried the, the, around for a few years. The wasn't pilot it? was in seventy nine, and then first but broadcast. It was in written before then, wasn't it? I got the feeling. And there's a slight sense that he's a bit more labourish. Thinking like um, his, his political advisor Weisel does not seem like somebody who would be working for the Conservatives at that time. There's just something about his attitude. Uh, the talk of open government and clean sweeps. Well, exactly. And Hacker is supposed to have been the editor of a publication called Reform. And if you were publishing a periodical called that in the Tory party in the late 70s, then that would have been undoubtedly Thatcherite. It would have been something that was coming from the sort of monetarist arm of the party. So, yes, I think that he's more likely to be on the left and that fits in with the idea of open government, freedom of information, and so on. But by the time we get to yes, Prime Minister, he seems fairly conservative. It would be the most natural, quickest drift right from 1979 to the mid-80s, from somewhere in the middle. So that's it. Jim Hacker is a Liberal Prime Minister. I think you've got a very strong argument for this. The only thing I would add to that would be that there has never been a Labour administration, not even 1945, in which afterwards there haven't been figures who've said that government was not left-wing enough. Post-1997, if we're going to talk about drifts, whether it's criticism, compliment or observation, I know it's very different, but I'm just thinking in the 70s, the point we find Jim Hacker in the mid-80s, I think it would have been a very, very long journey for 70s Labour to get to the point where Jim Hacker is in the 80s, where he appears to be... Well, in a way, you could argue that Jim Hacker is a Labour Prime Minister if Labour had won in 79, because it was losing in 79 that suddenly caused that seismic shift in the Labour Party to go very left-wing for those few years, and then start the process under Kinnock of slowly but surely going back to that centre-left position. Whereas 
I don't necessarily think that you would have had the people like Tony Benn come to the forefront if Labour had still been in government. I think there would have been pressure on them to sort of keep themselves contained and not, you know, frighten the White House and NATO and so on. But they were then free to do that in opposition. Well, here's an interesting thing that I'd just like you to tackle. And I can't remember where I heard it, but you're you're more politically aware than I am. I don't remember who said it, but I remember somebody saying that Jim Callaghan was a One Nation conservative who mistook himself for a socialist. I think there was a lot of Jim Callaghan in Jim Hacker. He's somebody who has got a social conscience. He is not an ideologue. He is somebody who is still a canny politician, but there are certain places that he won't go. There are certain areas where he just knows that something is wrong from right. It's not like he's lost his moral compass, and he never does lose his moral compass at any point, even when he's Prime Minister later on. But yes, you could certainly say about Callaghan that whereas he was a Labour man through and through, he was also somebody who was very well aware that socialist policies quite often have the effect of scaring off the electorate. And he extended that to socialist policies being enacted with you know, the possibility that then it's going to scare away the electorate come the next election, for example. So he was always somebody who was seen as on the right of the Labour Party and was more in line with people, say, like Roy Hattersley, for example. In later years, after he'd left office, he became friendly with Norman Tebbit, for example, whereas it's unlikely that he would have been tickly pally with, say, Ken Livingston. So, yeah, I would say that there are a lot of similarities between Jim Callaghan and Jim Hacker. I don't necessarily think the Hacker is as conniving as, say, Harold Wilson. He takes more of a conciliatory approach. I think the Hacker believes in his own abilities as far as getting everybody around the table and getting them to see reason. I think the the respective politics of Jay and Lynn, that difference has been talked about. I'm not entirely saying they cancel each other out, but the, there is this prismatic thing about Yes, Minister, and yes, Prime Minister. If you look one way, it's like, well, the civil service is full of very reactionary people and progressive policies can't win. And the other side of it is, oh, you know, government gets in the way of everything. Quasi-anarcho-capitalist. I'm just going to have to have a quick lie down after saying quasi-anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> Did anybody have that in a sitcom club bingo card? <laughs> I want to go back to something. You this just... is weird. I get way more political talking about old sitcoms than I really do about politics. Well... I want to go back to something you just said a minute ago about one thing that Margot would not have approved of, and that is the element of factorism that allowed anybody to be successful, like, for example, a figure like Derek Trotter. We've just had recently, and it's still going on just now, a repeat run of Are You Being Served in the afternoons on BBC Two on Afternoon Classics. A running theme throughout those episodes, particularly the early ones, is the rise of the well-off trade union official ahead of Derek Trotter's time you've got this new money as it's often spoken about the first episode of Yes My Dear for example John Sanderson says you know we've got to have people like Wally Briggs helping us on our committee because that's where the money is these days and frequently you have say Mr. Mash or Mr. Harmon suddenly pulling out a wad of notes whereas the rest of Grace Priller's staff are busily counting their pennies in their pay packet. This is a theme which comes back again and again in 1970s sitcom, is that the trade union officials and their members are doing very well, and that's where the money is now. You don't have to fast forward too far, fast forward to 1984, and 
in Tripper's day, for example, you suddenly got a union rep with one member in his union. Suddenly they're seen as a joke, they're seen as an irrelevance. Now it's a turn of people like Derek Trotter. Somebody like, for example, say, James Beck in Dad's Army. Someone like him would have done very well under Thatcherism. How much do you think, then, things like on the buses and the rag trade made it easier for the deunionization in British life? That portrayal of trade unions and, and their reps being unreasonable, bolshy, just because, of course, the flip side to that is carry on at your convenience. Yes. Now, this was something that was picked up on in that ITV3 documentary just a few weeks ago, Carry On Forever, where they mentioned that it was the only one of the films that didn't immediately turn a profit because it wasn't popular with their core audience. You can sort of understand that in a way because having the excesses of the trade union movement in something like I'm Alright Jack balanced with the greed of the corporate bosses as portrayed by someone like Terry Thomas, there's a nice balance there and people can see how absurd the situation is on both sides. Where I've just mentioned, for example, you know, union reps in most situation comedy. Say, for example, Russell Hunter in The Gaffer. He's balanced by Bill Maynard trying every trick in the book to try and get one past him, for example. So I suspect things like that where it's a nice balance. I mean, in the rag trade you said yourself, yeah, Miriam Callum is quite militant, but we also know that Peter Jones will sometimes make promises on behalf of the workers that he hasn't consulted them about previously. He will suddenly come and say, we've got to have this order ready by five o'clock, and he hasn't discussed it with them previously. So you can see then that they've got legitimate grievance, and they say, well, actually, you know, we're entitled to a bit of the old buns, so to speak. Whereas, yeah, in Carry On At Your Convenience, it all seems to be one-way traffic. As far as how much that dictates what's happened later on, I mean, are the sitcoms, are they driving public opinion away from trade unions or are they simply representing what people were seeing in the workplace each day? This is the problem we will keep hitting again and again and again whenever we deal with certain political issues. I've mentioned before as the Mr. Humphreys problem. Some people have said that Mr. Humphreys is almost as bad as Nazi propaganda. That did happen or did I dream it? I'm not sure where that line comes from but... I think it might have been Peter Tatchell. This is an official sitcom club interruption. We've checked our extensive archives and confirmed that in an article in The Independent entitled Only Fools and Turkeys, Were These the Worst Sitcoms Ever from March 2004, Peter Tatchell said, Are You Being Served was the gay equivalent of the black and white minstrel show Only Worse. Queers were caricatured in ways not far removed from Nazis ridiculing the Jews. John Inman's character reinforced every sad, pathetic cliché and stereotype about gay men. His limp-wristed buffoonery demoralised a whole generation of young queers and set back the cause of gay emancipation. We now return you to the scheduled podcast. But the Mr. Humphreys problem is, and it's, it's always going to be the thing, because you, if you get into discussion about this show and that show, it's, yes, it's racist, no, it's not racist. Yes, it's homophobic. No, it's not homophobic. Yeah, but yes, it's bigoted. No, it's not bigoted. Is it? It's harmless. It's harmful. What I identify as the Mr. Humphreys problem or the Mr. Humphreys question. Some people in the audience will have their prejudices strengthened and hardened because he's a mincing, ridiculous figure. And some will have them softened because he's one of the nicest guys in the show. He's the funniest. He's the most likable. He's quite obviously gay and he's not a bad guy. 
some will not be affected either way. And there's no ability to count which is which. Some will left at Alf Garnet, some will left with Alf Garnet, some will switch off and be unchanged in their position. And that's not really a very satisfying conclusion. But quite a few of these, whenever you're tackling something and saying, is it or isn't it harmful? The question is, it's like, it has harmed some and not harmed others, and we can't count them. Let me throw in an example here, because I would say that a figure like Miriam Carlin in the rank trade, I can't really see how her character could cause any viewer to suddenly develop or even to harden existing anti-union feelings within them. Because although she's quite militant, she's also very charming and witty and looks out for her co-workers. And she also actually gets on very well with Mr. Fenner as well. In fact, there is actually a suggestion later on, I think, in the LWT years, that there's actually been some sort of relationship between the two of them. I can't really see anybody looking at that thinking, yeah, these bloody unions have got themselves out of control and so on. In a moment, we'll discuss the issue of how sitcoms maintain the balance, for example, because sitcoms, like everything else in television, they've got to maintain the balance and fit in with the broadcasting rules and so on. There is an episode of Happy Days in which Richie Cunningham stands for election as a Democrat, which puts him in opposition with his father, who is a Republican. And strangely enough, in the course of this story, we discover that Fonzie is a Republican. Now, I was a little bit surprised about this because I would have thought that Fonzie would have just turned up and just blown away the, all the sort of political cobwebs and said, hey, ee, man, I've got no time for all that kind of thing. <laughs> Somebody strangled Roland Rat. <laughs> hey, I've got no time for any of you furry duddies. You know, the Fonzie, you know, walks his own path. It, it just, it, it, it surprised me a little bit to hear him actually say that he was one way or the other. Well, Fonzie is very anti-racist, as we discovered in that episode where he sat at a lunch counter and all racism ended. Sorry, just all looked a bit too neat uh, the way they did it. But they did deal with the fact that this is set in pre-civil rights America. And the Republican Party would be a very natural home in the 1950s for an anti-racist because this is pre-Southern strategy. This is back in the days when the Democrats were more racist than greedy and the Republicans were more greedy than racist. That was the main difference. And there is that slight difference because, of course, uh, they're in the North, they're in Wisconsin. So there is a certain difference. But um, you've heard of Jackie Robinson, yeah? The baseball player. I remember reading an essay about uh, why he became a Republican. And, of course, he became a Republican in the early 60s, I think. The only conclusion to draw from that, again, is uh, because uh, we tend to look at fairly old sitcoms, it's just always to keep retuning ourselves to the political situation at the time. It doesn't really have... I mean, Fonzie's vote has nothing to say about what's going to happen in 2016. Oh, no, actually, no, sorry, what am I saying? Fonzie voted for Barack Obama. Ron Howard did a campaign commercial in 2008 for Obama in which he returned to being whatever his character was in the Andy Griffith show. Then we have a scene between Ron Howard and... Henry Winkler in character as Richie and the Fonz. Why are we talking about Arthur Fonzarelli's vote? Right, so what I'm saying is being a Republican in the 1950s is different from being a Republican now. And I'm sure that our listeners are all very aware and I've insulted them. But hang on a minute. because This, this isn't a good we're not, idea. We're not saying that Richie Cunningham was a Dixiecrat, are we? No, because he's in Wisconsin. It's slightly different. It's just worth bearing in mind if anybody tells you Fonzie was a Republican. Yes, he was. But what did that mean in 1950 whenever? As far as British sitcoms are concerned, 
I can't think of too many occasions when there is an overt political bias in the text. And this runs contrary to the idea that some put forward that, for example, the BBC is an extension of the Communist Party of Great Britain <laughs> and that it's just pumping out propaganda 24-7. Thing is that when we were preparing for this, I was thinking of this sitcom character, that sitcom character, thinking most of them are conservatives, because so much of British sitcom, certainly in the twentieth century, is about social climbers who are naturally going to vote conservative because they think that that's what posh people do. I mean, start naming some of the well. I mean, we know about Alf Garnet. That was Spitz. Whole point was he's voting against his own interests. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the, the working class Tory was a really, really good little program on Radio Four a few years back about the working class conservative it was sent by David Davis. And they did address the topic of working class Tories in sitcom and spoke about Alf Garnett and Albert Steptoe, for example. The view I think that Davis came to in that, hopefully not misrepresenting him, I think the view that he took was that even though those characters sometimes win certain battles, they're still fundamentally figures of fun. They're seen as figures who are oblivious to the fact that they're voting against their own interests. And I'd love to know actually the, the precise origin of this line. I suspect that the instance that I'm particularly aware of, I don't think this would have been the first time that he ever used it. But in the election night, it's a horrible expression, I apologise for, for suddenly leaping into the 21st century, mash up there is a Johnny Spate sitcom that went out on the night of the 1970 election called Up the Polls, and it's a mixture of curry and chips and Till Death is Two Part. So Alf Garnett meets with Eric Sykes and Spike Milligan's characters from Curry and Chips in the pub. And there's this lovely line from Eric Sykes where he says, My grandfather bought a pair of boots and walked five miles to vote Tory. That's exactly the kind of line that they're talking about that the working class Tory comes out with and is oblivious to. As far as examples, we'll come back to Step 2 and Garnet in a moment because there's a couple of aspects I want to touch on about them. But okay, to give you an example of an aspirational working class Tory, Rigsby. Is aspirational the right word? He's just a snob. He is a snob, but there is a particular episode of Rising Damp called Stand Up and Be Counted, in which there is a by-election and Rigsby is actively campaigning for the Tory candidate who is, I suppose he is a candidate in the Alec Douglas Hume figure, the gentry. You know, he's, um, he's got no real knowledge of the the general electorate. He's just seen as the sort of the old Shire Tory. He's played by Anthony Sharp. And Rigsby mentions about how he's been attending the local Conservative Association, but there's only one person in there who actually ever speaks to him, and he cleans the glasses. So he's got sort of aspirations that he'd like to be accepted into the golf club and so on. And meanwhile, his flatmates, I mean, Alan actually says, interestingly enough, he is not a cartoon left-wing figure. He actually specifically says he's a Maoist. Although in this instance he will vote Labour because that's the only option he's got. That's an interesting episode in as much as it actually not only deals with straightforward party politics and pins, rosettes and colours very, very clearly to the characters involved, but also addresses head-on 
the the failings of the parties themselves. I mean, you'd think that Rixby, why does he continue to try and curry favour with the Conservative Association when he admits himself that nobody down there speaks to them? They, they see him as in some way inferior to them. It wouldn't be very funny otherwise, would it? It'd be dangerously close to people getting what they want, which we said is always a risk in sitcom. If a character gets what he wants. Mind you, if we're talking about Rising Damp and politics, we have to mention why you can't watch that particular episode on Sullied. Yes, the Labour candidate in that episode had a name when it first went out, which happened to be the same surname as a Labour MP. And in it, he's portrayed by Michael Ward, a lovely little appearance by himself as this very cultured, very effeminate, described by Rigsby as a middle-class poof. Rigsby makes remarks about his personal integrity, which apparently was a problem when it came to this particular MP successfully pursuing a lawsuit against Yorkshire. Whenever you see that episode these days, they're using a backup edition, which makes it look like a really horrible NTSC transfer. And if you watch it very carefully, when Rigsby holds the poster for the candidate, very, very well done for 1991, which is when this was done. It would be a lot easier to do it nowadays with current software. But there was basically a large pink strip across the top of that poster blanking out the candidate's name. And presumably this would have been manually done in 91. This has to follow the poster around as Rigsby is waving it around the place. So it's very nicely achieved. And from this point onwards, he's simply billed as Labour candidate. That's again, it's an odd episode in that, okay, so Labour candidate is portrayed in a way that Rigsby does not like. And yet, even though your sympathy as a viewer is largely with the young ones, Alan Philip, and with Ruth, who's got sort of ideas about supporting Ian Lavender as the Liberal candidate. And Rigsby's very clued as in that the local Tories are not the nicest of people and so on. There's a lovely little twist. It's a spoiler, but I'm going to bring it in anyway, because that's the discussion that we're having. The twist is that Anthony Sharp's Tory is everything that he's sort of made out to be. He's, he doesn't even know Rigsby's name properly, and even when he's told Rigsby's name, still doesn't pronounce it correctly, and just looks upon him as basically cannon fodder. You know, he's just somebody who should be out there knocking on doors and getting support for himself, but it's not as if he's going to be rewarded in any way. But the twist is that then he looks around at the boarding house and says, yes, the unacceptable face of capitalism. Don't you worry, we'll get all this torn down when we get in. You know, I, I suspect the landlord's a nasty piece of work, is that it? And so suddenly Rigsby finds himself sticking on the red rosette and trying to learn the words to the red flag. So it's a nice little twist there in which sometimes sitcoms have a clunky way of dealing with that issue of maintaining impartiality, where quite often you'll get a sitcom candidate say that they want to stand for election and then just tar all politicians with the same brush and therefore they stand as an independent. And there they are. Stood, well, it used to be that they would be stood there with a purple rosette because that was the one neutral colour. It isn't now because it's UKIP's colour. So you'd have to find some other colour, maybe cyan or something like that, I'm not sure. So that would be an easy, lazy sort of way of introducing politics into a sitcom, not wanting to actually get in depth as far as party politics were concerned. You just basically, you wanted to have a situation where you wanted, say, a candidate knocking on doors and, and so on. And that's a nice little twist to the standard sort of procedure there. It actually does address party politics and British party politics head on. 
and does so in a nice, clever way that it ticks all the boxes as far as impartiality is concerned, but it's still bloody funny. Let me ask you something, Ocho. Teddy Collier. Whatever happened to Like the Lads, there is a running theme through that that Bob supposedly has started to vote Conservative and that Teddy sees this as a sort of class betrayal. So where do we think Teddy is on the political scale? Tribal Labour. His dad voted. Imagine he, yeah, voted yeah so his on. dad and his dad and his dad, yes. I imagine he doesn't possibly even think about the policies. He just knows how to vote. Whereas Bob, I can imagine chopping and changing from election to election. There had always been this talk. Was there an idea that came from Clementine Lafreniere, the, the idea of visiting them a third time and having Bob chewed up and spat out by free enterprise? And the reason it didn't happen was James Bollum's unwillingness. That's the story I've heard, but there are stories about the likely lads that have been shown not to be entirely true, like it never being repeated. We'll just have to say citation needed. But that's what I mean about social climbers. Is Bob really voting conservative because he thinks that they serve his best interest and the best interests of the country? Or is he just doing it as a lifestyle accessory to prove to himself how far he's come? Yes, it's almost as if it's actually in some ways on the social aspiration ladder that Bob and Terry were manual workers. They would have been in a union in the 1960s. And now there's Bob in a sort of managerial position. And yeah, it's almost as if that's part of the transformation. (laughs) That now that he is no longer part of the standard sort of workforce that Bob and Teddy would have expected to enter when they left school. Now suddenly he's management. I mean, that's how Albert Steptoe describes himself. <laughs> he gets offended when Harold calls him a worker. And actually Harold turns it into a gag and says, that's true. You know, you're not a worker, are you? But yeah, Albert Steptoe considers himself management. If Bob was to join his local conservative association, although he's well-spoken, he's still from a working class background. And he'd probably be held up as a sort of representative figure. Look, we've got working class people in the Tory party. But he'd get very uncomfortable. I think he'd start to feel like a dancing bear. Well, that episode with Julian Holloway, we eventually find out just how far even Thelma's snobbery will stretch. And there's a sudden, you know, come off it. Julian Holloway's character is, didn't he go to a minor public school? He's actually not really drawn into the fight, but it just shows that there comes a point when Bob's old class identity will reassert itself. I want to quickly mention ever-decreasing circles, which you'd think we'd have mentioned before now. We know Martin voted for his Conservative MP, and we know Paul is friends with him. I don't doubt there's any question that Howard and Hilda probably vote Conservative. Again, possibly because parents did, parents did, parents did. Anne, I think, might be (laughs) quite alliance, but I don't think there are any Labour voters in the close. Do we think that Paul is pally with a Conservative MP because he's Conservative, or is Paul just pally with him because he's pally with a lot of people? Well, it's, it's interesting he doesn't commit on that, but I think Paul doesn't vote. In some ways, I could actually imagine Paul voting for something like the Green Party. But I think he's, as, as you say, I think he's going to maintain good relationships with everyone. And there yeah, is that sort he's of... He's curious because, of course, he went to Cambridge, but he, he says himself he went on a scholarship, but he does seem frightfully... Was he an officer in the army? It's a big question mark over Paul's actual background. The moment he says that he got into Cambridge on a scholarship, that does raise a question. Well, from what level did you rise up to? Were you just below the line? Were you sort of lower middle class leaping up? Or did you actually come from the class caps and middens? 
Well, that's accusation and frozen is that he would certainly be officer material, but there's a point at which when responsibility wears its ugly head, suddenly he changes course midstream. I could well see Martin, because Martin does complain about the fact that Paul has friends. It's always Paul's answer. Paul's got friends. He's always got friends who come in and do favours for him. And that's how he gets things done. I could very well imagine Martin throwing the accusation towards Paul that Paul is somebody who hedges his bets. And so he would be pally with the Tory MP. He'd also probably be pally with the Labour candidate as well, and the Liberal, and anybody else who was around there. And I suspect that Paul would deny that it was in any way a sort of calculated thing. But I can't really imagine a situation in which Paul would suddenly find himself out of sorts, as if... Okay, I'm not saying that Paul hasn't got any principles at all. We're really drawing a lot of this from one episode. Well, no, I, I think... No, hang on a minute. It's, it's a couple of different episodes, but it does centre around Anne being in the open university and campaigning against cuts to funding. It's interesting that Martin is is actually beyond the pale of the local Conservative MP. Martin is more conservative than the Conservative. He thinks that the Open University is a communist plot. Yes. That's the thing I find interesting because, as you said in The Good Life, there's a, there's a coziness. There's, you know, maybe we should just chuck all this up and just be Esmond and Lobby Club until we've finished, until we've watched <laughs> everything. Well, we're certainly getting a lot of requests for Hope It Rains, and I'm sure that we will, we will do that. I'm trying to think of Labour voters in Esmond and Larby shows, and I can't think of any. But I also find it interesting that a lot of what Martin says sound like Daily Mail talking points, and we are definitely supposed to be laughing at him. It's interesting in this almost cosily apolitical setup. This is like, well, you know, we're not like him, are we? We can't let that go unanswered, so we've got to address that just now. I'm going to throw a couple of possibilities for Labour voters in Esmond and Larby sitcoms. First of all, I'm going to suggest Jacko. Aha, right. Yep, swine. My ignorance of brushstrokes. My weak spot. (laughs) I'd also hazard a guess as to Bernard Hedges. All right, yes. I think he would be. I think he would be a Labour voter. I guess I'm kind of taking ever-decreasing circles and good life as, as reflective of the really traditional British sitcom as a whole. There's a lot of small-c conservatism, and then things which are probably broadly mainstream views in Britain at the times just suddenly become ridiculous to this vision. Somebody somewhere is jumping up and down and shouting Marks and Granitas. We've spoken about Marks and Gran before. They put explicitly party political messages, don't they, in there? Shows. Okay, so I don't need to go over it again. I've discussed my view on snakes and ladders, for example, <laughs> which... I wasn't trying to press that sore point. Eh? But, okay, no, I think I have mentioned this actually before in passing, but I'm going to mention it again because I think it's an interesting instance of a sitcom being at odds with its audience, or at least, at the very least, at odds with the studio audience. And to their credit, they didn't attempt any laughter washing to cover up this fact there's an early episode of goodnight sweetheart in which gary is struggling to come to terms with this time space continuum portal business where he can suddenly find himself back in 1940 and he phones his radio station because the radio station is inviting callers 
who have supposedly had a sort of out-of-body experience, as they put it. And the DJ, he's a smarmy, transatlantic, stereotypical DJ. And he said, have you ever had a bizarre out-of-body experience you can't account for? Like going into a voting booth and finding that you voted for John Major. That line gets absolutely zero reaction from the audience. Does not get a titter, nothing. It just lands with a dull thud. This is 1993. And so it, it's it's after Black Wednesday and it's after a lot of people are having a tough time with the recession and so on. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of people in that studio audience and a lot of people watching at home did vote for John Major. It's not well structured. I think that's its first and foremost problem. You would have expected at least a little titter. You'd expect something, but that gets yes, nothing. It gets just gets utter silence. There's just something about the, the way that that line comes across as if to say, if you voted for John Major, then you're a bloody idiot. You're unlikely to even admit that you did so. And for a sitcom that's going out at eight o'clock on a Thursday evening, that's an unusual element. Well, the to, thing to about have. Marks and Grannies is that the politics jumps up and announces itself. And yeah, I'm thinking, good night, sweetheart. I mean, they have the thing at the end, Clement Attlee. But is there anything in... I suppose maybe there's Noel Coward... I'm just thinking you could make a very interesting, subtle thing about the slight dissolving of class boundaries during the Second World War that led to the post-war consensus. And do they really pick that up and run with it if they want to do their socialist sitcom? I would say on balance, probably not. That's what I mean. The political message comes up and goes, hello, this is written by two Labour voters, and we'd really hope that you're going to turn out on the day. Should I actually just point out... (laughs) It's ridiculous as it sounds to say it. We don't actually know how Marx and Grand vote. I mean, it, it would surprise me if I suddenly got a communication from them to say, well, actually, I think you'll find that we've been lifelong members of the local Conservative Association. <laughs> but I'm I mean, sure they've given interviews, haven't they? And- I've never actually heard them interviewed on the subject of their own politics, but it's not difficult to work out. Not if you've seen Snakes and Ladders, anyway. It would be daft not to mention the New Statesman in a discussion about sitcom and politics, especially as we already mentioned Yes Minister. And I mentioned the thick of it in passing in a moment as well. But as far as New Statesman is concerned, the reason I haven't really brought it up is because it's not a show that I really particularly care for. When ITV, unusually for them, so it was a very nice touch from them, they had an hour and a half long tribute to Rick Mail. When he passed away last year, they showed an episode of New Statesman and they showed an episode of Rick Mail Presents, the drama series he did for Granada. And I watched the New Statesman episode, first of all, and as much as I adore Rick Mail's performance in it, because he's always, I mean, I'm a huge Rick Mail fan, he's always good in these things, I couldn't sit through New Statesman. I mean, subtlety is, is just not a feature of the show. That's part of the reason why I haven't really mentioned it today. It's not really come up because I'm just it's not a show that I've really watched. Having looked at that episode again just now, I don't really think it's a show that I'm going to go back to any anytime soon. It's just certain shows you just don't take to. So unfortunately, that's a blind spot as far as I'm concerned. As far as the thick of it's concerned, now you've seen the thick of it, Audrey. I've been watching some of it recently. Yes, I didn't particularly watch it at the time it first hit the scene. It's interesting that... It doesn't seek to blur the lines in the same way as something like Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. It is very clearly stated that this is the Labour government that's being discussed, and here's the Conservative opposition, and then later on here's the Coalition government, the Labour opposition. And it would have been fairly easy to go down the road of 
just sort of blurring those lines and not really addressing that issue. But I think they pull it off pretty well. It is even-handed, and there are no monsters in it. Not even Malcolm Tucker. There's there's nobody in there who's two-dimensional. And everybody is their own individual character. And there was actually a point at which Chris Addison's character says that exact line, people can surprise you. So there isn't really anybody in there who's behaving along stereotypical party lines. I suppose one reason for Yes Minister blurring the lines though it's really about the civil service as much as it's about the government. Yes, so the, the, the point is being made that it would be like this with the civil service regardless of what colour of rosette the incoming minister has. I mean, for the last few minutes, I've actually been thinking about an article from last year about the professionals which mentioned the swinging right wing in drama. But it's that thing of quite reactionary, but with flares and a bit of sexual openness. Okay, he's not the hero figure that Borean Dollar made out to be, but would you say that Del Boy is the closest approximation you've got in sitcom? The closest, but even then, he, he's, he's actually quite in a desperate position. You could quite easily write a waffling essay about Only Fools and Horses about being how Del Boy's fooled and he's trapped in the reduced opportunities for the working class. I'm so sure, sure you could write a free enterprise essay as well. But there you go, that's my point. There's an ambivalence about Del Boy's position. Okay, I'm dying to ask the question. I'm going to ask, I've saved it up until this point, and I'll actually want like a definitive answer about this as well. Between okay. me and the ballot box, and actually I no, haven't no, been able no. to get a vote because the system for overseas voters is pretty heavily balanced in favour of very well-connected expats. It, it wasn't It wasn't that at all. It, it was going to be, how does Callan vote? I don't think he does because he knows that they're not really in charge. I need to rewatch The Sandbaggers because The Sandbaggers starts in 1978. And I'm pretty sure if we go through, we've, we do have at least at one point to deal with the idea, depending how realistic you want to take it, depending how much based in our world The Sandbaggers is meant to be. You would have to process the idea of Jim Callahan saying to somebody, yeah, I want this guy assassinated. <laughs> I think, does he not but actually... Yes, I think that, that's it. Callan doesn't vote because every prime minister at some point has told him to kill somebody. Indirectly, it's filtered down through different levels. But I think there's another point, I can't even remember which episode it is, there's another point at which Jim Hacker actually does suggest that to Humphrey, where he says about one particularly troublesome, perhaps it was a foreign leader. Can't we just, you know... Mm. take care of him. I suspect that Jim, I think Jim Hacker would be okay with that, but he wouldn't want to know about it. Okay, now you admitted quite bravely on the sitcom club a few weeks ago that you'd actually be watching some 21st century comedies. I well, had, yes. They were American ones. So, let's conclude on this as a question. Party political membership is on the wane and has been on the wane for quite some time. And trade union membership, whilst it's still significant, doesn't carry the same weight in terms of the power of the, the trade union in the average workplace. Is it going to be the case that as time passes, political parties, political colours, persuasions, strict demarcation, are these relics, are these things which are not really likely to feature in modern day sitcom in the future. Well, you're saying that social climbing is not as possible as it once was, and eventually 
the social climber in sitcom is going to be too much of a tragic figure. No, actually, I was, oh, I was okay. arguing sort of the opposite, as in simultaneously we seem to have ended up in a situation where there is less to choose between the principal parties. And so people who are social climbers can do so without having to necessarily abandon their membership of the Labour Party and suddenly join up with a local Conservative club. And also there is a general cynicism and not necessarily disinterest, but certainly distrust of party politics and politicians in general. So that the Don't idea... Use disinterest to mean uninterest. No, I, no, I, no, I it's, didn't. It's, it's two different words and they do two different jobs and we need to preserve them. Well, I don't mean uninterest because... Okay, no, because we're going to have an election which is probably going to have a turnout of somewhere between sort of 65 and 70%. So you can't really... No, you, you wouldn't say it was uninterest. But I find it hard to imagine, say, an episode of, say, I don't know, like maybe Outnumbered, for example, or an episode of... Someone maybe even like sort of Vicious, for example. I can't imagine an episode of a current sitcom in which two characters fall out over party political matters because there's a local by-election and they're both sat there with different coloured rosettes and they've got like each other's posters in the window. I just I can't quite visualise that in 2015. That's why we're looking down the barrel of a hung parliament. So what we're saying is we want massive ideological changes to make our sitcoms better and we need greater social mobility to give us social climbing monsters. Where you have two or more parties that have very distinct ideological offerings, then you have conflict. And where you have conflict, then you have situation comedies. Whereas, as things have been sort of latterly, whereas everything's sort of fighting over the centre ground, it's not a lot of scope for conflict there. In other words, the premise of that Rise and Damp episode could not happen in 2015, realistically. Yes, it's a very interesting point. I can think of one sitcom character whose vote, if he had one, would be principally driven by healthcare. Probably most likely would want a strong and efficient NHS that makes people live longer. Mulberry. Lightens his load. <laughs> yes. I was actually going to ask you earlier on how does Mulberry vote, but then Mulberry, he's no, not an electoral he, vote, is no, he? No, he isn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Personally speaking, I can say that the best possible result of a general election on Thursday, the 7th of May, would be one that A, generates lots of hilarity for future sitcoms, B, generates lots of hijinks in the House of Commons, because I'm a political and I watch BBC Parliament for fun, and one that generates a new general election in a matter of months, so we can do it all over again, and we can have <laughs> a reprise of this podcast. Do you want to and mention your book? Should yes. I? Yeah, go on then. Okay, but if you are at all interested in election night broadcasting, you might find some interest in a little text available for the Kindle called Swing, A Brief History of British General Election Broadcasting. And it's got a lovely cover on it, which was designed by someone that you're all aware of. That reminds me of that election leaflet. I won't mention which party it was. Been doing the runs on Twitter where it says... No more wind farms on the next line. It says, invest in renewable energy. <laughs> if I sound slightly different at this point, it's because I've had a wee bit of dental work. And because it was rather complicated, it's actually quite painful for me to speak at the moment. So what we're going to do next week in a change of plan 
instead of the sitcom club, we're going to bring forward our first official Jaffa Cakes for Proust podcast, which is going to be on the subject of Children's Film Foundation movies of yesteryear. And the sitcom club will be back as per normal on Thursday 14th of May. So look out for that next Thursday on the sitcom club, Feed Jaffa Cakes for Proust 